I love, I love my job. It's amazing. Uh, the Air Force Academy is an, is an, it's an incredible place, and it's full of incredible people, highly credentialed people, very intelligent young men and young women. And although they are very intelligent, they are still hurting, and they need the gospel. Um, now, one of the unique things about the Air Force Academy is that in order to attend the school, a cadet needs more than good grades. They need more than high test scores. They need more than impressive extracurriculars. They need more than athleticism. All those things are great, but they need one thing in particular to get into the Air Force Academy. Without this one thing, they will never step foot on campus. And that one thing is a congressional nomination. Um, a member of Congress has to become their mediator. A member of Congress has to bridge the gap between them and USAFA. If they don't receive this nomination, they will not attend. Their grades can't bridge the gap. Their high test scores can't bridge the gap. Their athleticism, their extracurriculars, none of it can bridge the gap and get them into the academy in and of themselves. They have to have the right mediator. And we are no different this morning. Uh, we also have to have the right mediator. Um, on the horizontal level, this makes perfect sense. We see this all the time. Um, if you're applying for a new job, you need a mediator. You need somebody to write a recommendation for you, right? To bridge the gap between you and the job. If you find yourself in trouble, you need a lawyer to mediate on your behalf, to bridge the gap between you and the judge. If you want to meet someone famous, you need like a mutual friend to bridge the gap, to offer introductions, to be your mediator. You have to have the right mediator. We understand this on the horizontal level. But for some reason, when it comes to the vertical, things begin to get cloudy. Uh, when it comes to God, uh, when it comes to bridging what I call the holiness gap between us and him, we tend to think that any mediator will do that we can just plug and play. But if a cadet can't get into the Air Force Academy without the right mediator, what makes you think that you can get into God's family without the right mediator? It can't be done. You have to have the right mediator. We will use all sorts of things, right? We'll use our job to mediate for us. We'll use our beauty. We'll use our degrees, maybe our family and friends our awards, our wealth, our reputation, you name it, and we'll use it. Uh, we will literally turn to anything to mediate on our behalf to bridge the gap, but you have to have the right mediator. Francis Schaeffer, one of the great Christian philosophers of the 20th century, um, he was invited by a few low-ranking officials in the Nixon administration if he would like to meet the president and talk about the world's woes. And Francis Schaeffer obviously said, yeah, sure, that sounds great. So these low-ranking officials, they kept trying, and they would ask over and over if Francis Schaeffer could schedule a meeting with the president, and request after request was denied. And here's why. The low-ranking officials were not the right mediators. A few years later, Dr. Schaefer was finally and formally invited to the White House, and he got to spend an entire evening sharing a meal with President Ford. And here's why. 
President Ford had a son, and this son was one of Dr. Schaefer's students. And this son became the mediator between Dr. Schaefer and his dad. And President Ford said yes to his son. You see, the son provided access to the father because the son was the right mediator. This morning, we are welcomed into the conversation uh, between God the Son and God the Father in John 17. This is an amazing, beautiful chapter throughout the Gospel of John. We've been in uh, the series on prayer since the beginning of the, the year, so we're going to stay there this morning. In John 17, in less than 24 hours, Jesus will be hanging on a cross. And with his final hours, he stops and he prays. We get to see what Jesus prays for in his moment of trial. We get to see what Jesus prays for when he is facing the humiliation of the cross. And Jesus stops and he prays for you. He prays for us. If you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's word. We will be looking at John chapter 17, verses 6 through 23. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth." I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Let me pray for us. 
Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this time that we have together in your word. We pray that you would uh, speak to us, that you would move in our midst this morning, that you would open our eyes, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, and that you would draw us closer to yourself, that we would see Jesus as our only mediator who bridges the gap and brings us into your presence forever. It's through his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. first thing Jesus prays for here in John 17 is he prays for our divine protection. In verse 11, Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me. Now, the Greek word used for keep is the Greek word tareo, and it means to care for. Okay, so Jesus is essentially praying. He's asking the Father, please take care of my children. Take care of them for me. And then in verse 12, Jesus uses the same word, tareo, again. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. But then Jesus does something very significant that is so often missed. He adds another verb to what he has said that he has done as his role as their, disciple, as their um, shepherd. And this is what he says. He uses the Greek word phuloso. Okay, which means to guard. He says, I have guarded them. So not only have I kept them, not only have I cared for them, I have guarded them. And this is incredibly significant. And here's why. This is the high priestly prayer. Okay, these verbs are not new to the biblical story. We first see them in Genesis 2 verse 15 to describe Adam and Eve's priestly role in the garden. They were commanded by God to keep the garden, which is the Hebrew word avad, and they were to guard the garden. It's the Hebrew word shamar. They were to keep it, and they were to guard it. They were to take care of it. They were to ensure that the garden flourished, that it would grow and expand and cover the earth. And they were also to guard it from intruders to ensure that it remained safe. Adam and Eve were living in God's house. This was God's dwelling place on earth. That's what the Garden of Eden was. And as people, as children living in God's house, God gave them chores. He gave them two priestly chores. He told them to keep and guard the garden. Okay? The exact two same verbs are used together in Numbers 3, verses 7 to 8 to describe the Levitical priest's role in the tabernacle. They also were charged with keeping and guarding the tabernacle. That was their job as priests because the tabernacle, like the garden, was God's dwelling place on earth. Now, do you, do you see the significance of these two verbs in Jesus' prayer? Jesus is saying, I am the great high priest. I am the one true mediator. I have done what Adam had failed to do. I have cared for and I have guarded the dwelling place of God perfectly. And the dwelling place of God is no longer a garden or a building. It's a people. He's saying, I have kept them 
and I have guarded them because I'm their high priest. In John 17, Jesus is praying for the Father to do the same. And Jesus has full confidence that his Father will be able to do these two things for Jesus while he is away. When I was in seminary, my wife, she graciously went back to work to provide for our family so I wasn't in school for God knows how long. Um, she went back to work. So with my wife working full time and with me being in seminary full time, we had two young daughters at the time. They were ages two and three. So they weren't even in school yet and we needed someone to take care of our children while we were both away. So we looked and we looked, but to be honest, the decision was very easy and obvious. We asked Jen's parents to watch our kids for us over the course of three years because we had full confidence in them to take care of our children because we knew that they loved our children as their own. Jesus says, all mine are yours and yours are mine. Jesus had full confidence that his father would take care of and guard his children while he was away. In John 17, Jesus knew that he was about to go away. He's looking straight at the cross while he's praying this prayer. He knew he was soon going to leave this place, but he knew he'd return one day. And so while he was gone... He put his children in the care and the protection of his loving father. And he had full confidence that his father would continue to protect them from the evil one, just as Jesus had protected them and cared for them. And I love this. What is the instrument that God uses to protect us? Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given to me. Now there is power in a name. There is the power of protection in a name. Everyone looks to the names that they've received to give their life meaning, to give their lives purpose. They look to these names to protect them. Everyone looks to these names to give them some sense of significance and self-worth. Michael Phelps, he has been named the greatest Olympian of all time. The greatest Olympian of all time. Now that, that's a name, right? Michael Phelps holds the world records for the, the number of Olympic gold medals. He has 23. And total medals, he has 28 Olympic medals. But in 2014, Michael Phelps realized that the name greatest Olympian of all time, it couldn't protect him. It couldn't protect him from his shame and his anxiety and his childhood trauma. And as a result, he spiraled into depression and he turned to alcohol to numb the pain. And as a result, he received two DUI arrests. In October of 2014, with 18 gold medals already written to his name, he was already considered the greatest Olympian of all time. Michael Phelps was entered into an addiction treatment center, and after his release, he was interviewed by ESPN, because ESPN is so nosy, regarding his downward spiral. They wanted to hear what Michael Phelps had to say about his addiction. And this is what Phelps said. He said, I had no self-esteem. 
no self-worth. I thought that the world would just be better off without me. I figured that was the best thing to do, to just end my life. This is Michael Phelps. This is the greatest Olympian of all time. Phelps realized that that name couldn't protect him, that it was insufficient. Um, In fact, that name made him more vulnerable because that name was culturally disguised as sufficient. Right? What about you? What names that are disguised as culturally sufficient have you received? What names do you carry that you think will protect you? My friend, Satan knows that there is power in a name. He knows that the protection that we crave comes from a name. And so his ultimate goal is for you to define yourself with false names that can't protect you. Names like stupid and failure and loser and liar, pervert, worthless, useless, hopeless, not enough. He'll throw names at you all the time hoping that you'll latch on to one of them, thinking that it can somehow define who you are. Listen, Jesus prayed, keep them in your name, which you gave to me. Now, what is the name that the Father gave to the Son? He said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus was named God's beloved. And in John 17, Jesus is praying for us to live under the shelter of that same name. You are God's beloved. You already are. Let that truth wash over you this morning and just live in it and drink of the grace that is from God. Author uh, Brennan Manning, a Catholic theologian, he put it like this. He said, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is your true self. Every other identity is an illusion. My friends, how would your life look if you believe that? If you lived in a way that said every step of every day, I am God's beloved. You don't need to pursue a name that can't protect you because you've already received in Christ the name that is above all names, beloved. Christian author Ann Voskamp, she grew up in a broken and very abusive home. And to feel something, she turned to cutting. She would cut her wrists. After she became a Christian, she began to draw a cross over the scars on her wrist. She did that so she would remember this truth. I am God's beloved. God loves me and he is for me. 
I belong to him. I am safe in the power of his name, both now and forever. Second, Jesus prays for our worldly distinction. Um, In verses 15 and 16, Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You've heard it said, as Christians, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. It's important to understand what Jesus means when he says the word world. There's a lot of confusion here throughout the Gospel of John. When Jesus says world, he is not referring to our physical earth or our physical universe. That's not what he's referring to. He's also not referring to the entire human population. Jesus is referring to the godless and rebellious system that inhabits creation because of the fall. It's the system that seeks to dethrone God. At some point in each of our lives, we were of this world. We were of this system. We were part of it. We sought to dethrone God and put ourselves on the throne. We lived under the dominion of sin, and we were enemies of God. That is what Jesus is talking about when he says world. It's this fallen realm. But through faith in Christ, you are no longer of that world. We may still live in it, but we are not of it. We are now and forever part of a new godly system, all the while still surrounded by the godless system. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. In other words, we are to be set apart because we already are set apart by God. And so our lives should reflect this distinction. In other words, we should pop People should take notice of the church. More often than not, Christians tend to fall into one of two extremes. And isn't that so often the case? We love extremes on every spectrum, it seems. Um, Christians are no different. We fall into one of two extremes. Um, Some Christians choose to wall themselves off from the world. Other Christians choose to conform themselves to the world. Those who try to wall themselves off from the world, they rightly recognize that our world is really scary. And it's hard. And it's a war zone. And so they hide. During the medieval age, countless Christians began to move to monasteries where they would live the duration of their life. Now, I'm not opposed to monasteries, but I am opposed to monasteries when they begin to deny the Great Commission. When they become holy huddles, they began to separate themselves from the world for a lifetime. They no longer were in the world. Listen, we are to be the salt of the earth. Now, what do you think a spoonful of salt would taste like? Probably pretty gross, right? Likewise, and I'll be blunt. Holy huddles are gross. 
That's not what we were made for. Salt is meant to be rubbed into food, and Christians are meant to be rubbed into the world. As the salt of the earth, Christians are meant to spread the flavor of the gospel everywhere we go. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the conform extreme, the assimilation extreme. These are the Christians who want to be in the world. They want to reach it where it is. But as a result, they overreach and they become a part of it. They, they begin to absorb, absorb the trends and they become indistinguishable from their surrounding culture, from the godless system. Now, when the historic teachings of Christianity start to disagree with culture, these Christians, they tend to accommodate and assimilate and conform. And as a result, they look more like the world than the church. I want you to think of it like a boat. Right? Maybe you've heard this illustration before. Think of it like a boat. A boat was made to be in water. If a boat is not in water, it can't do what it was designed to do. Boats are also not made to be full of water. Just as a boat can't do what it was made to do when, it was, when it's outside of water, a boat can't do what it was designed to do when it is full of water. A boat is to be in it, but not full of it. Christians were designed to be in this world. It's what we were created for. It's what Jesus commissioned us for. We were not created to separate ourselves from it or conform to it. When the world gets into the boat, the boat begins to sink. As Christians, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be distinct, yet present. We are to be the salt of the earth. We are to rub the gospel into every sphere of our lives. Two years ago on Palm Sunday, ISIS terrorists, they bombed a, a Coptic Christian church in Egypt. And they killed 45 Christians during their worship service. Um, a couple days later, the wife of one of the men who was killed in the attack, she was interviewed by the, the national news, like the, the, made, the, the primary news outlet in Egypt. And on live television, this is what she said. She said, I'm not angry at the one who did this. I'm telling him, may God forgive you. And we also forgive you. Believe me, we forgive you. The Muslim anchorman, he couldn't believe what he had heard. And on live television, he, he sits there and he's speechless for 13 seconds. He had no words. He had never seen forgiveness like this before. Once he had gathered his thoughts, this is what he said. Egyptian Christians are made of steel. How great is the amount of forgiveness that you have. If your enemy knew how much forgiveness you had for him, he wouldn't believe it. If it were my father, I could never say this. These people have so much forgiveness because this is their faith. These people are made from a different substance. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. 
We are to be the salt of the earth. In John 17, Jesus warns us that this world will bring us trouble. trouble. It will oppose us just as it opposed Jesus. But as we live out our faith in this world that opposes us, we are to be distinct because we have an otherworldly way of living. And when they see it, it'll leave them speechless. And once they gather their thoughts, I pray that they say something like this. American Christians are made of steel. How great is this forgiveness that you have? American Christians are made from a different substance. And they'll believe that Christ was the Son of God. Number three, Jesus prays for Christian unification. In verse 23, he says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, loved them even as you loved me. In 1991, Rodney King was uh, brutally beaten by LAPD police officers. And you remember his famous words? Can't we all just get along? Answer, no. Sin has affected our world so deeply and so fully and so comprehensively that our natural inclination is division. In the realm of the world, it's as if we crave it. It's like we, we long for division. Knowing this, Jesus prays for unity. He prays for Christian unity. And since Christ's prayers are always answered because he always prayed the will of God, as Christians, we are no longer trapped or enslaved in this posture of division. We're free from that. Division is no longer our natural inclination. It may be our habitual inclination, but it's no longer our natural inclination because we have been made new. Listen, our country is so divided right now, it, it's sick. We had another political season approaching fast, and the division that we see is sickening. It seems that everyone wants to claim, everyone claims to want unity, but it seems that like nobody actually follows through because nobody knows where to find it. It is only the redemptive work of Jesus Christ that brings true unity into a divided world. My friends, there has never been a greater time than now for the, the church, the Christian church, to be a light in a very dark world, to be a unifying light. Our old self may be habitually inclined to division, but our new self, our united to Christ self, has been set free. Division is no longer what we crave. This is why the early church fathers, they included this line in the Nicene Creed. They said, we believe in one holy Catholic, that means universal and apostolic church. If we really believe that, that we believe in one 
apostolic church, then why is it that we live in a way that says that isn't true? As Christians, we must believe in Christian unity because the blood of Jesus Christ made it real. The redemptive work of Christ made Christian unity not not just like a visible possibility, but an invisible reality. Every true Christian from every time and from every place is inseparably united to one another because they are all inseparably united to the worth and work of Jesus Christ. We, we are united to him, so we are united to one another. We already have unity. Now we just got to pull it into our present reality, to our visible reality. Our union with one another mirrors the union between God the Father and God the Son. That blows me away. That blows my mind. We are united to that extent. Then why do we live as if that isn't true? Listen, Christians can have legitimate and very serious theological differences. Um, trust me, I, I get it. And I'm, I don't back away from differences. But we can still pursue the unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17. Although we are saved, we are still fallen, finite, and fallible. And no Christian has the right answer. Some have more. But no Christian has all the answers because no Christian is God. Have some intellectual humility. But here's the thing, every Christian has the same high priest. Every Christian has the same mediator. And every Christian has been redeemed by the same sacrifice. Uh, You see, not only did Jesus, as our great high priest, offer the sacrifice that atoned for our sins, the sacrifice he offered was himself. Jesus was both the subject and the object of his priestly work. And as a result, he has brought unity into our diversity. And get this, his priestly work is far from over. It hasn't stopped. We see this in Hebrews 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Always. In John 17, we get a glimpse into the Holy of Holies. We get to eavesdrop on a conversation between God the Son and God the Father. We get to peek behind the curtain. And we get to see what Jesus prays for. What he prayed for in John 17 and what he is praying for right now. We get to see what the resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ is doing right this second. And what's he doing? He's praying for you. Now. 
He's praying for your protection in a world that will oppose you. He's praying for you to be boldly distinct, to be in the world but not of the world. And he is praying for Christian unity. He's praying for the church universal to show our watching divided world what true unity looks like. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. You have to have the right mediator. Do you? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we can come before you because Jesus, our great high priest, is interceding on our behalf now. We're so thankful that he kept us and guards us and keeps us safe from the evil one. And we pray, Lord, that we would be a people that are protected from his power, from his lies, from his false names. We pray that we would live in the truth that we have been set free, that we are loved by you. We pray that we would be boldly distinct, that we would pop, that we would stand out, that the world would take notice of the unity that we have with one another and that this will cause them to ask questions and and come to faith themselves in Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that we would be a people that are united, not belittling our differences, not denying them, but pursuing unity. Uh, We thank you for the gospel, for the redeeming work of Christ. We stand in his merit alone, and it's through his name we pray. Amen.